0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Family Sanctuary, a show that inspires living the gospel message in word and deed within our families. And now, Family Sanctuary with host Peggy Hartshorn.
1: Welcome to the Family Sanctuary, focusing on life-giving relationships and the family. I'm your host, Peggy Hartshorn, Chairman of the Board of Heartbeat International, that advances life-affirming pregnancy help around the world, and we're now in 60 countries. And today, we've got a topic that I think we all need to really listen up, you might say. (laughs) This is something that uh, we're all having to deal with in, in medical care. Our topic today is living wills are there better alternatives? And the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, there are many issues with the living will. We're going to look briefly at those issues, as well as the Catholic teaching on end-of-life issues, uh, when, of course, a living will comes into effect, the pressure that's put on people today for signing living wills, and what are the alternatives, particularly when we look at ourselves Individually, if you've ever gone into a hospital, you've been asked to sign a living will. Uh, They're sometimes asking now in doctor's offices, do you have a living will? What is our response? Um, and, And what are the alternatives? And particularly, this is an issue if we have older family members that we're caring for. There's going to be a lot of pressure if they enter a nursing home, um, if they enter into hospice care. So our guest today is really an expert on these matters. And I'm really happy to have her with us. Peg Wallach, local attorney. Welcome, Peg. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Let me introduce her a little more fully. Uh, Peg is an attorney um, after she graduated from law school, she worked for the attorney general's office and clerked for a judge for five years and then actually was the counsel for Heartbeat International for nine years. So I know Peg very, very well. And she is she and her husband, Steve, uh, live the pro-life pro-life ethic uh, just intensely in their family and their relationship and peg shares frequently on this topic perhaps you've heard her speak um she's she's eloquent in her in her experience and her for the alternatives to a living will, and we do have them. So Peg, um, she often speaks for for Right to Life, uh, Diocese of Columbus gatherings. She's spoken in parishes. Uh, If you'd like to have her in your parish, that's possible too. So Peg, welcome to the program. Thank you. nice (laughs) to be here. And would you start by just helping us understand. Obviously, the living will comes into effect and people are urged to sign a living will because there's a fear. Of What if I am lingering in a hospital attached to tubes? I want to die naturally. I don't want to have excessive care. I don't want um, to be hooked up to a respirator for months or years. And people have a fear about these things. They hear about them. And um, so so if someone says, do you want to sign a living will? Usually they'll say yes. Uh, I, I don't want to be kept alive unnecessarily when I'm in the dying process. That's what they think a living will does. But there there are problems with that, Peg. And what is the Catholic teaching, first of all? Let's start us with the Catholic teaching on care. When you really uh, are in a hospital, you need a respirator. Uh, what is the Catholic teaching? Well, The definition
0: that has kind of helped me as I've you know faced decisions with my mother and and things like that are that you're going to look at the benefit of a treatment versus the burden of a treatment to the patient. And that is just a definition that's kind of easy for everybody to understand. What are the pros and cons? What are the benefits versus the burdens? And years ago, I was in estate planning, and this is exactly what I saw, what you're talking about with clients that would come in. And they would sign a living will because they were told, oh, this will, you know, prevent you being connected to all kinds of tubes and all kinds of things. And at the time, I was a board member of Columbus Right to Life. And I had heard that there were a lot of concerns about the living will. So I had done just a little research into Catholic teaching and how does the living will work. And one thing I saw was that it trumped your agent, meaning You can also sign a durable power of attorney for health care. So when I was doing estate planning, people would be presented with a living will, and they'd also be presented with this durable power of attorney for health care, where they appointed a person to make decisions if they could not make decisions for themselves.
1: And And that's usually the way we think this should work, generally, that your family, your loved ones, your husband, your wife, uh, if it's a child, the parent, That's kind of the way we think this should work, isn't it? That the person who loves us the most or the family that loves us will make decisions for our benefit if we're in this situation.
0: But what people need to understand about the living will is it's a legal document, it's a directive that tells your doctors, the hospital, you know, whoever's caring for you, that in these two scenarios, this is what I want to happen. And the two scenarios are if I am terminally ill. And death is going to happen in a relatively short amount of time. Or I'm in a permanently unconscious state. And what I would ask clients was, if you are in that situation, do you want this piece of paper to control what happens to you? Or do you want your spouse to make the decision? And everybody said, I want my spouse to make the decision. So I said, well, then don't sign the living will, because you're going to tie the hands of the doctors. You're going to tie the hands of your family members. Because those doctors have to follow this legal document.
1: And, and I, the de- legal document can't predict all of the specific circumstances that may occur at the time you're in the hospital.
0: Right. And I think it, it's very all or nothing, like getting back to Catholic teaching, where we're trying to weigh the benefit versus the burden of the treatment to the patient. A living will is going to take away food and water automatically automatically. If you're deemed terminally ill, it's going to mandate that your physician issue a DNR order.
1: Do not resuscitate. Right.
0: It's very all or nothing. It's going to mandate that DNR order also if you're in a permanently unconscious state. Um, You know, so it doesn't let you weigh the benefit versus the burden of the treatment. And the other issue I see as a Catholic is that it is withdrawing food and water. And. As Catholics, you know, food and water, even if artificially administered, is something that we owe to people unless their body can't assimilate it. You know, it's it's really deemed ordinary care. There's just a presumption in favor of food and water.
1: And yet let's clarify that that doesn't mean food and water has to be forced on a person who's dying. Right. Because in the natural process of dying, often. The patient doesn't want food and water anymore, rejects food and water. Exactly. And that's part of the natural process of the body shutting down.
0: But again, you're allowing your loved ones to make that decision right under the power of attorney for health care so they can see the whole medical situation and make their best prudential judgment on whether or not artificially administered food and water is, is more of a burden or if it's a benefit. And the um, ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services, you know, talks about that. Um, and they added a paragraph in 2009, which I think was in response to the Terry Schiavo case. Uh, you know, I don't know that for sure. Um, but they talk about how, you know, somebody who is in a, I hate to use the word persistent vegetative state, but that's what the document that's says. That's the medical term. Uh, that's what the document says, that that people are entitled
1: to food and water in that instance. So they've, they've specifically addressed that case. And in the case of Terry Schiavo, for those who, who aren't familiar with that case, was quite a well-publicized case of a young woman who was unconscious mm-hmm. uh, and was still uh, accepting food and water, and she was not dying. Right. She was not dying. Uh, and yet the state insisted... Uh, that food and water be withdrawn. So it was quite a notorious case and helped, I think, everyone clarify what is the proper teaching? What is the life-affirming teaching on withdrawing food and water?
0: The other thing that was interesting about that case is I saw a lot of editorials at the time saying, sign a living will, then you won't have this problem. And I thought, well, no, you won't. Then you'll definitely have the food and water withdrawn Mm -hmm. if you sign a living will. Mm -hmm. So, again, I think the better alternative is to appoint a person under health care power of attorney.
1: And as the program goes on, we'll be giving some websites and some references where you can make sure that your final documents, uh, if you haven't already done an estate plan, as Peg is talking about, how can you really get a good Catholic focused durable power of attorney uh, so we'll be talking about that a little more peg so basically the the major point is that the living will will trump your person I love the I love the way you succinctly yep. say that the person that you trust the most to make decisions for your care uh if you can't make those decisions on your own if you are unconscious or you're in the dying process uh your, the, a living will will trump your person.
0: That's exactly right. And right. again, if you're a Catholic and you want to weigh the benefit versus the burden of a treatment, that document doesn't get you there and it is going to direct your doctor to issue DNR orders to remove food and water and, and people need to understand that as well. Mm.
1: And there have actually been some court cases, I know, that you've pointed out uh, where um, this has happened, where a wife, I know one case that, mm-hmm. that I remember you talking about, uh, wanted her husband to continue to receive food and water. And and she had to go to court and was denied. Right. And it
0: was, it was really a shame. This couple had been married for 53 years. It was a couple down in Florida. And they signed the living will and the power of attorney for health care the same day, which happens a lot if you're getting into a hospital or if you're meeting with an attorney, you know, you sign them the same day. Mm-hmm. And her husband had appointed her under the power of attorney for health care. But the living will said, you know, he really didn't want, any measures and she had to go to court. And of course the hospital is trying to follow the legal document that he signed. And, you know, but it just broke my heart that instead of being in the hospital with her husband, she's having to go to court to fight this. And mm-hmm. so I just hate, I don't and want the to the it went against her it as did well. go against her. And, and they did and
1: withdraw the food and water.
0: They, I, I think it was a ventilator actually. And, um, they removed it and two hours later he died. Mm-hmm.
1: So, So Peg, what happened if if someone's listening and says, I already signed a living will, now what?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing um, I've done, I've worked with a local attorney, Matt Fanley, to come up with pro-life powers of attorney for health care. And ours says right at the beginning that I hereby revoke any prior living will, any prior health care power of attorney, so that since that document would be signed later in time, that should control I, I would also recommend if you know who has copies of a living will that you signed, if you know what attorney you went to, you know, call them and say, I revoke that, tear it up, send it back to me. I don't want that used anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think it's always, always a good idea to sign a document later in time that will control that specifically says, I revoke any prior living wills.
1: Mm-hmm. So make sure that you're, that, when you do sign a durable power of attorney, there is a statement there that says this is to supersede Correct. any living will that I have signed in the past.
0: Correct. And if you just sign the standard Ohio form that's published by the, like, the Ohio State Bar Association. The Ohio Living Will form? No, the no. standard durable power of attorney for health care. Okay. You will not have that comment in there. That okay. language is not in there because the standard Ohio power of attorney for health care is kind of meant to work in conjunction with the Ohio living will. So it's not going to have that verbiage. And I, am, I know that Matt Fanley's documents contain that wording. I know that, for example, well, I'd have to double check, but I believe the Protective Medical Decisions document, which is another power of attorney for healthcare, the Patients' Rights Council publishes that. It comports with Ohio law. I know it has that
1: kind of wording in there too. Mm-hmm. pretty confident it has that wording. So just make sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Peg, uh, by the way, let me reintroduce our guest. Our guest today is Peg Woolick, a local Columbus attorney, uh, who is, has become quite an expert on, on end of life documents, the living will, the durable power uh, of attorney for healthcare. Uh, she, um, has quite an extensive pro life background as well as her professional attorney. Uh, training, and uh, she speaks and teaches regularly in the diocese on these issues. So she, she's a tremendous resource uh, for us to understand Catholic teaching on these end-of-life issues and what the alternatives are so we can make sure that if if our loved one or if we ourselves are in a situation in a hospital where they're facing a decision, do I withdraw, do we withdraw the ventilator, do we withdraw food and water, that That you have the best possible life affirming care for yourself or for your loved one it 's a very, very important issue, so thank you, Peg, again, for being with us today. Um, I know you and I have both uh cared for my mother now has has passed away uh she passed away about a year ago at at almost age ninety five Your mother is still in care. Uh, in a nursing facility mm-hmm. and when we have family members who are aging and entering um facilities like uh, a assisted living or or, or, mm-hmm. or nursing home right we're definitely faced with these issues as well as for instance not only are they going to ask you immediately about the living will or the durable power of attorney for health care they're going to ask you about do not resuscitate and it's it's very it's kind of over, overwhelming, I know, when my mother entered an assisted living. And, of, of course, they'll t- say, well, we have uh, social workers who can help you understand this and nurses, and they really don't help you understand it very much. <laughs>
0: well, and I, that has happened with my mom with a, a DNR order. We did do not resuscitate. Yeah, she suffered <clears throat> a subdural hematoma. And I guess I should back up and share that my mom has had Parkinson's for over 30 years, so it's not unusual for her to fall. And she fell and had a subdural hematoma and was in the hospital with surgery. And they had her um, on a ventilator and just, you know, helping her recover kind of thing. And they asked us about a DNR order. Well, my mom years ago had deep brain stimulation surgery. So she has these battery packs in her chest and these wires that go up into her brain and stimulate the brain And it stops all the shaking from Parkinson's. So I just thought, well, I really don't know if you hit my mom with paddles to resuscitate her. That's an electric shock. I, You know, I'm not a medical person. I'm like, what does that do if it hits those wires and they go up to her brain? And so I talked with the doctors there and um, they talked to their heart experts and found that if you just place the paddles somewhere differently like you would with somebody with a pacemaker then you could resuscitate her so you know you had to take the situation of well my mom's this kind of unique individual Mm -hmm. and a dnr might not be you know hitting her with those paddles might not be the best idea so again you're weighing the benefit versus the burden of the treatment to the patient Mm -hmm. so those are the kinds of things and the kind of analysis you need to go through when you are entering a nursing home or a hospital, I mean, they're all required to ask you about these documents. Mm-hmm. And you need to think about what's best for this patient.
1: And Peg, are you an expert? Uh, can you help me understand now when they they gave me the DNR, there were two versions, two yes. things I could select?
0: I can give you my layman's mm-hmm. understanding, which I got from Dr. Marion Shuda, because she and I have had these conversations a couple of times. Dr.
1: Shuda is a local a gerontologist.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. so we've had these conversations about my mom, and she said um, the DNR arrest only comes into play if you go into cardiac arrest, and with my mom right now, we've signed on to that because if you did try to resuscitate my mom with her osteoporosis and everything else, you'd cause a lot of injury and break a lot of bones. I mean, this woman's walking around with a separated shoulder that they can't put back in because mm-hmm. it won't stay. You know, she just has lost that much muscle tone and everything. So, but then a DNR, I'm not going to say the right thing. I think it's a CCA. I think it's comfort care. Comfort
1: care. That's what it is. Yes.
0: And I believe sometimes in the real world, they'll think that that's just comfort care measures only, and they may not give your loved one medications that they've been on in the past or, you know, so I'm a little hesitant to go that route. And I would just ask a lot of questions if somebody wanted me to sign on. I'd consult with people I know, like Dr. Shuda, who are medical professionals. I know that the National Catholic Bioethics Center has a great hotline that you can call and consult with them if you're facing a question. So that's part of what we were going to talk about today as well. It's just, well, what are resources? Mm -hmm. We're trying to encourage listeners to do this ahead of time. Talk to your loved ones ahead of time. Get the documents, good documents. In place ahead of time, but if you don't, there are resources that can help you if you're stuck and you're trying to decide what to do.
1: Sure. so uh, consulting with with medical professionals and particularly those who are life affirming, who are pro-life who can really help you understand these documents. Right. you mentioned the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Let me give the website for that right now www.ncbcenter. Center. Dot org, ncbcenter.org, and their phone number is 215-877-2660. So they can help with individual uh, issues, questions, help mm-hmm. talk you through that. Uh, I'm sure there are some clergy that are also well-versed in in Catholic teaching on end-of-life issues, um, attending talks as they're given around the diocese, and, and you do them too, Peg. And I know Dr. Shuda has also participated in some. Uh, educate yourself. Uh, what are some other resources that you think are good on this issue?
0: Well, one thing I like about the the pro-life health care power of attorney that Matt Fanley and I put together was at the very end of it, I list places you can go. So that for my family, I might list a priest I'm particularly close to, I might list Dr. Shuda. Uh, the National Catholic Bioethics Center is on there because my family might not be as up to speed on this as I mm-hmm. am. So, so I'm going to point them in the right direction if they need
1: So when they pull out the document
0: that gives find them the authority. These that, are people I know you can go to that you can talk to. Mm-hmm.
1: And you mentioned Matt Fenley. I believe it's F A H
0: F A E H N L E. And his phone number is 457-4113. He advertises on Catholic Radio. He yes. has area code 614. Mm-hmm. And his power of attorney for healthcare talks more about, I want food and water unless I am unable to assimilate them. My agent gets to decide, what does eminent mean? What does feudal mean? I can direct that my life not be ended by assisted suicide or euthanasia. I think it's really important to point out to people that if you have children who are over 18 years of age, really good idea to get one of these in place for them so that if they're in an accident or something else, you've got access to medical records, you can make the decision. I think as a practical matter, a lot of hospitals are going to talk to the parents, but it really can't hurt
1: to have this in place
0: so that you don't have to worry about that.
1: So in other words, you're saying if you have children under 18, over 18, make, over 18, make sure that because if they're under 18, you already would right. be the You'd person be the go-to. to go to to make the decisions. But right. if they're over 18 and they haven't uh, executed a document, you need to make sure that that happens so that, um, so that you or someone else that they trust can be the person who makes those decisions. And you just don't run into
0: any kind of HIPAA issues or issues about medical records privacy or so privacy. that you can
1: understand right. their care exactly. and help make those decisions. That's a very good point.
0: Well, and another example I heard about um, was there's kind of a list in the statute about who decides if you don't have a living well, for example, and you had an adult man, I'll call him Jim. And His parents were still living, but he also had a 19-year-old child. Per the statute, that 19-year-old child came ahead of his parents. As a
1: decision maker for his care. so
0: this 19-year-old child is trying to make all these decisions. Mm. So, you know, it's a good idea to just have a document and lay it out who you want to be the decision maker. Mm -hmm. And we've also drafted something that's kind of separate. From the power of attorney for health care, but it lets my agent know that I would like to be attended by a Catholic priest, that I would like the anointing of the sick. You know, different things like that that you can just say to your agent so that they think about those kinds of spiritual needs and spiritual care for you
1: at the end of life. That's that's a that's a wonderful idea as well, Peg, because obviously when people when this comes, when this situation comes uh, the person that has been appointed can feel overwhelmed. <laughs> sure. So there's guidance even in the document right. as to who they can consult and uh, what you want them to consider, not only in your in, in your physical care but also in your spiritual. In needs. your spiritual, right? Because right. if
0: I'm at the end of life and all you can do for me is put a scapular on me, pray the chaplet, and get me a priest,
1: right? So. So, uh, so Peg has been going over with us today. It's great to understand the Catholic teaching, Peg. Let's just, we've got a couple minutes left. Let's just summarize again the Catholic teaching on end-of-life care.
0: Again, I would go back to that benefit versus the burden. So in order to determine whether or not a treatment is extraordinary, you know, we hear that language all the time, one must weigh the benefit of the treatment with the burden of the treatment for the patient.
1: And that happens on a case-by-case basis. It's different for every patient and in every situation, which is why the living will, which is a one-size-fits-all document. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. That's why we need the durable power of attorney for health care. That's worded in a proper way. Correct. Right. A, a Catholic right. version, in a sense, that makes sure mm-hmm. that that person has the guidance they need to make those decisions. So uh, it, it's a very important topic. It relates to all of us. Yes, Peg. I do want to
0: just point out, too, that you are not required to sign a living will. Um Sometimes people feel that they are. But if you look at the State of Ohio Living Will Declaration Notice to Declare it, it comes right out and tells you, if you would not choose to limit any or all forms of life-sustaining treatment, You've got the legal right to do so in another document, so don't let anyone tell you you have to sign a living will.
1: That's a great point, Peg. And thank you so much to our guest, Peg Wallach, who's given us an excellent review today of living wills and what are the better alternatives, and there are. (laughs) So, uh, thank you again, Peg, and you're listening to Family Sanctuary. I'm your host, Peggy Hartshorn. You're listening to St. Gabriel Catholic Radio with archives at stgabrielradio.com. Our program, Family Sanctuary, is broadcast at 4 o'clock every Saturday and 2 o'clock on Sundays. So please join us again to strengthen our families and make them sanctuaries of life as God intended.
0: Family Sanctuary is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, AM 820. Archives of Family Sanctuary with Peggy Hartshorn are available at stgabrielradio.com Many
1: sancti-